Good morning, beloved. I always feel, feel a little silly saying this, but I'm Bill Smith. <laughs> I'm one of the teachers here at New Hope Chapel, privileged to be so. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, no truer words have ever been sung than how I need you. Oh, how we need you. Lord, I choose to step out of your way now. I've done all the preparation I can do. And so I'm now going to deliver as though I have not prepared. So I pray, Father, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, and the openness of our minds would be acceptable in your sight. For you are a rock, and you are our Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, hopefully I got the crying out of the way right up front this time. (laughs) So now we continue on this journey of looking at the book of Colossians. And Julie provided an excellent context for why Paul wrote this letter. I just want to revisit some of that. That he wrote this letter uh, from prison to a church that he had never visited, to people he had never met, and yet for whom he never sees praying. This is a hallmark of Paul that I sometimes overlook but it's an excellent example for me and maybe for all of us to pray for the saints, to pray for the church. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about all that he endured, being beaten, thrown in prison, shipwrecked, and the list goes on. And then he says, but forget about all that external stuff. On top of all that, the worst part of it is my daily pressure that's on me and my concern for all the churches. So Paul may have been especially vexed about the Colossians since he only knows of them, but he doesn't know them. And perhaps more importantly, he's heard they are being plagued by false teachers. So in addition to providing correct theology on the person of Jesus, Paul is also at the same time working on building a relationship with them. I'm traveling a lot more again because we have a new client who wants to shift their procurement strategy from competitive negotiation. Thanks, Josh to a collaborative negotiation. And the first step towards moving towards collaborative negotiation is to begin build relationships through a process of cultivating trust. For most of my students, this is a new concept, to treat the vendor with dignity and respect. So I teach them a variety of what I call trust-evoking behaviors using the concept of reciprocity, what you send out, you'll get back. We know it is treating others the way you want to treat them. It's my way of smuggling God's word into the corporation. They say, this is really interesting. This is powerful. Yeah, it is. (laughs) Thought of it all by myself. (laughs) Not. One of the most difficult situations they ask me about is, how do you build trusting relationships when you're negotiating over the phone or through email? It's hard to build a relationship with people you can't see. And of course, I often ask them, well, how important are these negotiations in terms of dollar value? They say, oh, they're very important in the millions and hundreds of millions of dollars. To which I respond, then why are you not getting on a plane <laughs> if it's that important? Negotiating over the phone or email is referred to as virtual negotiations, and it's not ideal. Paul was conducting a virtual negotiation with the people at Colossae because he was stuck in prison. Otherwise, we all know where Paul would have been. He would have been there. I think this is particularly made evident in this book by how he ends the letter, showing the many ways in which he is connected with them. In many of Paul's letters, he ends with some words for or about specific people, especially with regard to greeting. If you just think about how a lot of his letters end. 
Some of the letters he ends with just a general instruction to greet all the saints. But in Colossians, he ends this letter bringing up lots and lots of people. First, there's Titius, and then Onesimus, and Aristarchus, and Barnabas' cousin Mark, and oh, also Jesus, who was called Justice, and of course, Epaphras, one of their own, and those who were in Laodicea and Hierapolis. And let's not forget about Luke, the beloved physician, and also Demas. Oh, and be sure to say hi to Nympha and the church that is in her house, and finally give my best to Archippus. You see, I know a lot of the same people, he's saying. You and I all know and are connected by lots of relationships. And we care for and take care of each other. We are connected. We are friends. We are family. None of Paul's letters, except maybe for 1 Corinthians, ends with so many references to so many people. So as Julie introduced this letter last week, Paul was wanting to intercede in the teachings he heard were going awry. Not only was Paul providing correct teachings, I think he was doing this in an interesting way, unique to, all, to this book. He was doing it without condemning the Colossians. If you think of any of his other letters to the churches, it only takes a few seconds to remember, he could rebuke people pretty hard, couldn't he? Especially to the churches that he started. The language is usually strong. But he hadn't visited Colossae, so therefore we know he hadn't started the church there. Most likely, Epaphras had started that church. And so we see the wisdom of Paul in building relationships with people. You don't start with rebuke and condemnation. You start with praise. So whose teachings were they using? Well, they were using the teachings from Epaphras. Paul isn't even condemning Epaphras. In fact, he even praises him. So I think of this letter sort of in this way, without saying it directly, Paul is saying to the Colossians, what Epaphras taught you, was correct, but perhaps not sufficiently comprehensive. What you heard, what I taught Epaphras, so it's secondhand, but it was still correct. Now you are hearing it directly from me, and I heard it directly from the Lord, these truths I am conveying to you, so that you may know how to detect and counter any other false teachings. So let's read in this section of Colossians, the first chapter, if you want to follow in your Bibles, the first chapter, the 13th through the 23rd verse. And so he says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the church, the body, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope, the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So the Colossians were encountering 
what we would refer to now as probably New Age philosophy, human philosophy, which was coming from humans, so therefore would be probably more relevant than God's Word. If there was any book in the Bible that is most helpful in dealing with our current day humanistic philosophies, as well as attacks from science, it is this letter. We could retitle this book, Paul's Letter to the Christians in the 21st Century. Oh, we know so much stuff now, don't we? We're so clever, so smart. Every day a new discovery is announced. Science, science discoveries rank high on media priorities. Well, at least the discoveries they want to announce. I have a minor interest in scientific discovery simply because, from my perspective, every time there's a scientific discovery, it's simply another thing that God has chosen to reveal about himself, even to those who aren't looking for him. What I don't see often promoted in mainstream media are the scientific discoveries that contradict earlier discoveries. For example, not every scientist agrees with the theory of entropy, that everything is falling apart or decaying. Just within the past year, a team of physicists concluded that the math just doesn't work out for the Big Bang in terms of when they all agreed the Big Bang happened. Math's not working out. You probably didn't hear about that. Now many scientists are questioning the Big Bang with another recent discovery. You see, any time there's a bang, things fly apart pretty quickly, right? But then what happens? They eventually slow down. Things expand quickly and then start slowing down. Well, guess what they just recently discovered? The, the expansion of the universe is accelerating. That can't be right. We all decided it was slowing down. My response is, well, maybe in terms of time, we're still in the initial stage of the Big Bang, and things won't start slowing down for a few more billion years. Except I don't think the Big Bang is the answer to begin with. It might be a funny comedy show on TV, but it's not the answer. Every time we think we have it right, along comes another discovery that says we got it wrong. I think it's a scheme for selling new textbooks to schools. <laughs> Bad news, your books are wrong, you need the new version, sorry, give us some money. Very few scientific discoveries have lasted more than 100 years or, or so. Some have only lasted a few decades. The theory of gravity has been around for quite a while. However, some are now challenging that in terms of the, what is the reason for gravity. There's one discovery that's held up for quite some time, like for over 2,000 years. The scientists have been working hard like mad to disprove this discovery, much harder than they work on disproving their own discoveries. Just the opposite happens every time. Every time they think they discovered proof that Jesus didn't exist or he didn't do what he claimed or wasn't who he was, yet another archaeological dig proves he did. Paul wanted the Colossians, and therefore he wants us, to know the true significance and magnificence, magnificence and glory and wonder and power of who Jesus really is. So let's unpack this section a little further. The 13th verse, the first half. Who rescued us from the domain of darkness. The who in that verse is referring back to the previous verse, back to God the Father. And then it says rescued or delivered. Depending on which translation you have, you could have either word, they're both correct, to be removed from one circumstance or situation into another. The same word is used elsewhere, like in 2 Corinthians 1, who delivered us from a great peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and yet he will deliver us. Notice this word is in the past tense. He has delivered us. And we'll go on to say, and is delivering us, and will deliver us. And then it says, domain. 
What is a domain? Well, besides on the internet, I mean. What is a domain? Well, the domain, a domain can also be translated authority, which is connected to a sense of permission or power. It denotes the ability to exercise control or choice. We also get words like dominate, domain, dominion. One of the subtleties of the fallen nature of the world is the concept of dominion. In a moment, Paul is going to talk about the creation of the universe in the next verses. But I want to go back there now for a moment to help us see some connections that we might otherwise miss. So at creation, mankind, or Adam and Eve, were given dominion over the planet. We read in Genesis, Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the cattle, over everything. We were originally meant to have dominion or to rule over the planet. I think in some ways, those who are passionate about saving the planet are being somehow influenced by the original intent to rule over the planet. However, the original design was not for us to serve the planet nor to think of it as our mother. You might ask, what would having dominion over the planet look like if we had that? Well, I'm glad you asked that. I'll tell you. You would have the authority, you would have the authority to tell water to support you as you walked on top of it. You would have the power to rebuke a fig tree for not bearing fruit and it would wither away. You would be able to tell winds to be still and there would be peace. And you would be able to spit into dirt and make mud and turn that into an eyeball to give someone sight. You see, this is the one reason why Jesus is referred to as the second Adam. He had the same dominion over the planet that Adam originally possessed and then gave away. Through sin. Instead of having dominion over the planet, it's reversed. And we read in Genesis, God says to the woman, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be for your husband. Translated, you will want to have dominion over your husband, and he will have dominion over you. And to the man he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring up for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. The earth will no longer respond to you. You respond to it. It has dominion over you. You Think about all the addictions to drugs we have today. Guess where they came from? They came from the ground. Poppy seeds are grown and have dominion over us. So after the fall, the ground or soil is cursed in relationship to man. Adam and Eve would have been tending the garden. That's what they would have been doing. And they would have been tending it by voice command. It would have been like Alexa or Siri on steroids. (laughs) Eden, let there be a 40-foot gently curving path to the right and put primroses on both sides. And you know what would have happened? It would have been done. Try that now, and you'll hear the earth saying, sorry, I don't understand your command. And this dominion is called darkness. Obviously not referring to physical darkness, but rather moral or spiritual darkness that we're transferred from. But I guess the question is, why is darkness considered a domain or having authority or ability to have dominion over us? Well, think about it first from a physical point of view. How do you feel about moving around in the dark when it's pitch black? There's always some degree of concern, 
at best and deep anxiety at worst. I tried it in India and fell into the bathtub in the middle of the night. My elbow still hurts. So we could therefore say we are born into spiritual and moral darkness where we were free or had permission to wander around in that darkness and make choices. I wandered around in that darkness for some time. And I think so did you. One of the signs mankind is walking around in darkness in general is the level of anxiety in society. A society of anxiety, I call it, resulting in lots of unease, or we could say dis-ease. Disease, fear is rampant. Businesses play on that fear to sell their products. Media uses that fear to get us to watch the news. Satan uses that fear by suggesting we see each other as a threat. And therefore, we need to dominate each other. And God comes to the rescue by helping us understand we're walking around in the dark. It's called conviction. When we give our lives over to him, he gives us power, love, and a sound mind, not fear. A sign of transformation, and I know we've already concluded the series on maturity, but we're never really finished that series, are we? is when we move from blaming or dominating others to loving others. That's why it was a command. And then the second half of that verse, and I know we're like halfway through the sermon and I'm still on the first verse. I understand that. I'm keeping track of time. It says, and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Transferred. The Genesis story is telling us how man transferred control of his life from God to himself. Here in Colossians, Paul is explaining how God is giving us the opportunity to undo that decision and transfer control of our lives back to him. So when you make that decision, or have already made that decision, to respond to God's calling, when you sense that conviction and accept God's offer of forgiveness, then God transferred you into another authority or kingdom. And in the 14th verse, We're talking about the kingdom of the son of his love, as it's also translated, which I like a little better. The kingdom of the son of his love, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So redemption is the vehicle of transference. This redemption exists only in Jesus. You can't get it outside of Jesus. For example, your good works won't get you forgiveness. The simple reason is that you can only be forgiven by the one whom you've offended. You see, I can sin against my wife, but I can't go to my buddy Rick and ask him to forgive me. (laughs) I have to go to my wife and ask her for forgiveness. And then we go to the 15th verse. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So now Paul is saying, I'm going to get more specific about who I'm talking about. I want to be really clear who this person is. And so I encourage us all now to pay close attention because here in this section is some of the most lofty, exceptional, grand, and even outrageous claims about Jesus anywhere in the Bible, right here in Colossians. So Paul begins to unpack a more detailed description of the identity of Jesus. You see, while we were created, as I just read earlier, we were created in the image of God, Jesus is not in the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. In fact, he is the exact image of God. Remember when the disciples said to Jesus, Lord, just show us the Father, and it'll be enough for us. 
Remember that question? And what did he say? I've been here with you all this time, and you still don't recognize me. I think this notion of invisibility that's talked about here is important. Gravity is invisible, yet we seem to pay attention to it. To be invisible means unable to be seen. It doesn't mean something doesn't exist. We've learned to conclude that just because something, something we can't see doesn't exist uh, doesn't mean it doesn't exist. We see the effects of it, and therefore we conclude it must exist. Scientists have created the concept of dark matter. Have you heard about that? They haven't discovered it. They created it. How godlike can you possibly be? You know what they're now doing now that they've created the concept of dark matter? They're trying to discover it because they've already decided it exists. As an aside, I don't know why they can't do the same for God. Why don't you try to find him? Yeah, we already decided we can't see him, so he doesn't exist. But we know dark matter exists, but we can't see it. We can't find it, but we're pretty sure it's there. They're still trying. They just had their latest attempt at discovering it, and they had no evidence. But we don't give up hope. (laughs) They're going to find it. The reason they think dark matter exists is because they see scientific observations that suggest there's something else going on there. And it's called the law of cause and effect. Now, you might encounter a non-believer who will try to use the law of cause and effect to challenge the existence of God. They'll say something like, if every effect has a cause, then what caused God? And the answer is here in Colossians. The answer is because God is not an effect. He is the cause of everything, including he is the creator of the law of cause and effect. The second statement might create some confusion. It says he's the firstborn of all creation. Anybody get confused by that? Sometimes they'll use that. Jesus couldn't be God because it says he's the firstborn of creation, so therefore he was created. Well, let's first pay attention to prepositions. Um, I'm really death on prepositions in Scripture. There's these little words that we slip right by and go, well, let's go back and look at the preposition for a second, okay? So it doesn't say the firstborn from creation, but the firstborn of creation. So before you conclude that Jesus was created, you'll find other scriptures that contradict the notion that he was created. Like in John 1, it literally states, literal translation, when the beginning started, the word of God already existed. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So while the firstborn denotes birth order, in Jewish context, firstborn indicates position or rights or inheritance. Remember the story of Jacob and Esau that Steve went through a while back? Who was born first? Esau was. But then Esau sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of food. Now who's the firstborn? Jacob is. So after this interaction, Esau was born first, but Jacob's the firstborn. It's a position of title. In terms of rights, we could read Colossians this way. In terms of rights, creation has no rights compared to Jesus. Jesus owes nothing to creation. Creation owes everything to him. In Jewish custom, the firstborn inherits everything and can choose to share that with others or not. In the story of Joseph, we have Joseph who was born, what, the 11th child? And yet Jacob becomes the firstborn in terms of rights and positions. The older brothers now bow down to him. In the 16th verse, it says, For by him, 
or it also says in him, all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and yet for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And it occurs to me that the existence of our religious holidays in some ways do an injustice to conveying who Jesus really is. We have Christmas and Easter, and that's what the world hears about Jesus, a little baby and a convict on a cross. Even Easter, which is about the resurrection, is often framed around crucifixion. I've often heard Christmas sermons focused on the idea that this baby was born to die, and we're right back to the crucifixion. Now, don't get me wrong, I love Easter, I love Christmas. But it occurred to me is maybe we should have another holiday that celebrates Colossians, Colossians 1, 16 through 17. We could call it maybe Creation Day and maybe January 1st. We would celebrate the creation of the universe by the creator of the universe, and Christians would flock to their churches to remember how this was all created and who created it and why it was created and who it belongs to. That would give the world an even clearer picture of Jesus. In fact, it would even give us Christians a clear understanding of who we are worshiping and who we belong to and the power of the one who protects us and the resources of the one who provides for us and loves us. So the creation story here in Colossians starts out with, for in him all things were created. Now that sounds a little odd, doesn't it? In him all things were created. I like to watch this show, How It Was Made. Anybody like that show? I love to watch that show. I mean, I find it fascinating. <laughs> Engineers just astound me. You know, you see this stuff, and you're like, who thinks of this? And, of course, at the end of the show, I'm like, well, now I want to see the show on who designed that machine that made these things, you know? How are they figuring this out? Someone had to conceive of this machine in their mind first, The first computer chip was created in someone's mind. That's what Paul's telling us. The universe first existed in the mind of Jesus. He thought about it, and therefore it was created in him. I think of it like this, and please give me a little bit of tolerance and and grace here. But to me, it's, it's like one afternoon, the father walks up to the son who's just sitting there daydreaming. And the father asks, what are you thinking about, son? And Jesus says, just say the word and I'll show you, father. And so the father said, let there be light. And the universe came into existence, what Jesus was thinking about. See, I've said it before and I'll say it again. When God said, let there be light, well, those are words of God, aren't they? And in John we read, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus was the active creative force in Genesis 1-3. That's why Paul continues by saying, And all things have been created through him. We could say either God created the universe using his words, or we could say God created the universe using Jesus. Same thing. No difference. So I don't think there was a big bang. I think there was a big vibration because when God spoke... That starts to create vibration. Both in Haggai and Hebrews, God talks about shaking the earth and the heavens. And it also says, at the end of time, there will be a loud shout from heaven. And there will be a new creation, a new vibration. Everything is vibrating right now. Then Paul takes things a step further. He really wants the Colossians and us to fully appreciate the Son of God. 
Jesus is also holding everything together. Scientists are still confounded why atoms don't fly apart. Something must be holding them together. They have a lot of different theories, and they all sound good, but only to a point. And the problem is, something is not holding everything together. Someone is holding everything together. That's why I keep telling myself and telling my brothers and sisters, your life is not falling apart. Jesus is holding you together. Relax. Trust him. He's guiding the stars on their, well, actually on his path. And apparently he's accelerating the expansion of the universe. You have to be rather powerful to do that. Paul is telling us this is who lives in you. This is the one who thought you up. The same one who thought up the universe thought you up. Why would you think you also need some additional human philosophies to get along in life? You have everything you already need in Jesus. The same one who thought up the universe in his mind thought you up in his mind. There you initially existed in the mind of Jesus. And Paul's saying, I'm sure Epaphras taught you this, and now you're hearing it directly from me in more detail. You have everything you need. In fact, you have more than you need. And by the way, everything he made was good, just the way he wants it. You are just what he thought about. So thank him for the way he designed you. And Paul continues to expand on the identity of Jesus. He tells us about the position of Jesus. He's ranked above everything and everyone. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will have come to have first place in everything. Now, before it said the firstborn of creation, because Jesus is not created, now it says firstborn from the dead. That's because Jesus died. But he was the first one to do what? First one to come back. So he's the head. The Pope is not the head of the church. No person is the head of the church. Jesus is in charge. And that's something that's always made crystal clear here at New Hope Chapel. None of us are running this church. None of us are qualified to. Not to bias your vote this afternoon, but I am absolutely not qualified to run this church here. (laughs) Three times in Revelation, Jesus refers to himself as the Alpha and Omega, the beginning And the end, he makes this claim about himself. In the first section, Paul talked about the person of Jesus. Then he talks about now the position of Jesus. And he's getting ready to talk about the pleasure of Jesus and our position in Jesus. He goes on in verse 19, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. It says the fullness of deity to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away by these humanistic philosophies from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which is proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Well, we could go further into much more detail in these verses. When I initially reviewed this section, I thought I'm really going to have to stretch things out to go 30 minutes. And then I think I might have heard a slight chuckle from heaven. (laughs) 
And as I studied and I prayed and I began to write, and I realized I could talk for three hours on just verse 13. So I don't mean to give short shrift to the remaining section here, but I am a big fan of making things easy to understand and therefore maybe easy to apply. I'm always thinking, keep it simple. And I think in some ways many theologians have made something that's quite simple overly complex. I think Paul was doing the same things for the Colossians and there for us. The church has been and always will be attacked from without and from within until the Lord returns. Some attacks will be blatant and will always be an attempt to gain dominion. It's always about wanting dominion. Removing prayer from schools was clearly an attempt at domination by the world over Christianity. Notice now when Muslims wish to pray in school, they get immediate support. We have to be inclusive. I'm not saying Muslims should or shouldn't be able to pray in schools. That's not what I'm talking about. I want us to step back for a second and look at the big picture from the point of view of dominion. We're always trying to dominate each other. Our brother Warren has work because that's what we're all trying to do to each other. Right? Yeah. With the removal of prayer from schools and so many other places, Satan has gained dominion in other ways over children. I do not remember this level of teenage suicide when I was going to school. But we got prayer out. That's good. Now we all post on Facebook the suicide hotline. That's the effect. That's dominion. Darkness. In other ways, the attack or attempt to dominate has come from within the church. As a pastor friend of mine used to say, and Scott probably heard this before, but always be careful because Satan is sitting in the choir loft. Right? You've got to keep your eye on that. Just because they're in church doesn't mean they're necessarily saints. <laughs> Look, while we can and should study specific heresies encountered by the Colossians, there is also a simpler way to detect heresy. The actual specific philosophy, heresy, or false teaching really doesn't matter as much as whether it confirms or denies the deity, supremacy, authority, and person of Jesus. Whether it's New Age, Emergent Church, Atheism, Modern Science, Secular Humanism, Liberal Theology, Spiritualism, Universalism, Unitarianism, Islam, Baha'i Faith, Christian Science, Jehovah's Witness, Mormonism, Transcendental Meditation, Monism, and the list goes on. If the philosophy of religion denies the person and position of Jesus, it is by default heresy. It is by default false teaching. And the reason Paul's being so clear about this issue is the Lord knew that in the future there would be many religions or faiths that would honor him in some ways, but not in other ways. It's a deception. When I was out in Salt Lake City last year, I decided to go visit the Mormon temple to check it out. I toured there's just like, I guess, an art gallery or something there in the, in the Mormon temple next to it. The displays were extremely impressive. I mean, beyond what you can possibly imagine. Very well done. And Jesus in all these is held in very high esteem. In fact, many a Mormon will say they've accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I have friends who've said that. But then what I found out is a further, more specific conversation about this person of Jesus will not align with the book of Colossians. As one person said, the Mormons aren't Christians, but they practice Christianity better than anybody. 
He's not wrong. I think if we were to be on guard with respect to the church and theology, we would stay focused on what people are saying about Jesus. Ask the guys who come Tuesday evening to men's group when we study apologetics, and they'll tell you that when all is said and done with regard to theological discourse, what really matters is what do you say about Jesus. Satan will attempt to walk into church in disguise, and he will say Jesus was a great man, a great teacher, a prophet. But over time, there will be some additional thoughts and ideas they'll present that will cleverly direct people away from Jesus towards self-salvation. The real agenda is to be in a position to dominate, to dominate or gain control, to tell others how to live their lives. It happens at the community level, in the church. It happens at the national level, at the international level. Everybody has this desire to dominate others. Everyone who's getting too caught up in politics, I'm not saying don't be involved in politics. I'm saying when we get too caught up in it, in some way we are wanting to have dominion over others. We're wanting to tell everyone how to think, act, and live. That's when people ask me about it, I say I'm rather apolitical. I'm not even dreaming about how to tell anybody else to live. I'm just struggling trying to tell myself how to live. So don't put me in charge. Because <laughs> if you ask me what we should do, I, go, uh, I don't know. <laughs> just love each other. Because Jesus already told us how to live. He told us to live as though you're already dead. <laughs> as though you're crucified in Christ, no longer alive. Love one another. No one who loves another desires to have dominion over them. That's why we're told with respect to marriage, to submit to each other. We're not told to dominate each other. Darkness is a domain and tries to dominate. The kingdom of Jesus is actually not referred to as a domain, but as a kingdom of light, which gives us freedom from fear, resulting in clarity of thought and confidence in our situation. For now, we can see. So let us walk in this light together, loving one another, forgiving one another, encouraging each other, lifting each other up in prayer, supporting each other with our gifts, caring for one another in all patience, until that day when our Lord comes to take us home. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, We are thankful to hear your word today. We pray that you would impress upon our minds and our hearts to be always in remembrance of who Jesus really is and the complete scope of his power and of his love and of his holiness and of his desire to reconcile us to you. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.